0: This guy sort of shoves these uh, paper bags through the window at you, uh, and you you walk away with, uh, you know, I don't know, a a box of chocolates and some toilet roll.
1: You're listening to Text Message, the UK-focused technology podcast with me, Nate Langson. Now, Ian this week is away at the Consumer Electronics Show. We're going to unwrap that weirdly bearded, hairy present later and see what he gifts us from that side of the pond. Uh, But in his place this week to talk a bit about CES and also about the broader... Landscape of UK technology is Mr. Andrew Hoyle. Hello there. Now you've been here two weeks in a row. This is becoming a habit. It is becoming it's
2: a wonderful habit though. One that I'm one that I'm happy to have. Unlike all my other vices.
1: Indeed. Well, Andy's here from CNET.com, of course. where He's senior editor, so primed and nicely placed to help us talk about consumer electronics. This week, and we'll come to that in a bit. We're going to start by noting something that happened uh, with Tesla this week. Uh, before the end of the year, we'd actually heard that Elon Musk's carmaker was going to increase the price of its vehicles in the UK as a result of the weak pound uh, that followed the Brexit vote. Now, Tesla has delayed that price hike by a whole two weeks to the 15th of January. It's a 5% price increase, which doesn't sound like a lot, but on a Model S, which is about 60 grand in, in Britain, uh, that's a £3,000 rise uh, rise for the vehicle Tesla said that exceptionally high demand was one of the reasons for the grace period not entirely sure how that makes a difference over a fortnight but that's the official word Uh, but it is obviously just one more example of promised higher prices from tech companies since the vote others including Dell HTC HP Asus Microsoft uh, even camera lens maker Sigma amongst others um, have all mentioned that they're going to be raising prices uh, but at least Tesla's delaying it by two weeks Uh, the question of course here is that is a 5% more expensive tesla model s still worth buying andy has driven one across the continent so i thought it'd be worth asking him andy what's your view uh
2: i love the car and i think it is still worth that money and but bear in mind that that sixty that's the starting price for the car and once you add on um, any kind of extras, um, as with all cars, these cars come with an infinite, seemingly infinite amount of um, add-ons you can get. Which I think the one I drove was just under the hundred thousand pound mark. Um, so if you add on that uh, that same percentage, then suddenly that extra money is seeming um, seeming like quite a big step. Um, the thing to keep in mind with with the Teslas as well. Is that not only is it a price rise um, on the car itself, but Tesla, um, as of uh, as of this year, later this year, um, is stopping the free charging for everyone. At the moment, when you buy your Model S, you can drive it wherever. There's no more cost. There's no because obviously there's no fuel. And when you pull up to one of the Tesla charging stations, you recharge your car for full, full for free. And that isn't going to be the case anymore.
1: But is that something that's separate to this five percent hike? Um, I'm assuming that's just coincidental.
2: It is coincidental, um, yeah, because this is globally it's it's stopping this. So so this isn't a case of it's just um, uh, the fluctuating pound that's caused this, but this is rather sort of Tesla's business model that uh, I think it's just that they're finding it a little unsustainable, uh, and particularly with their, their next car, which is coming out called the Model 3, uh, which is designed to be much more affordable. That's going to be starting around the $30,000 mark. Um, it's obviously a lot less than the Model S. Um, they're basically sort of trying to find out ways to make a bit more money. Um, and the charging points is, is kind of one of the areas it's it's looking at um, sort of monetizing a little bit more than it currently is is doing. Um, but that's worth keeping in mind because you, if you're buying a car, a car in the UK, not only do you have this price rise, but you will need to keep in mind that you will then also be charging to, uh, uh, sorry, you will be charged to charge your car um, we don 't know exactly how much Tesla 's going to charge for use of these superchargers on the go hopefully it won 't be that much. It may just be a cursory amount to sort of help the infrastructure keep ticking over. but um, until we know more it 's difficult to to really
1: say yay or nay on that well i 'm glad we asked the question then in that case because to me, five percent price increase for a, a sixty thousand pound car seemed quite significant, but it actually sounds like it 's probably not the end of the world. No, I think possibly
2: not. And, and, and particularly if you are paying 60, 70, 80 grand for a car, that small amount extra isn't probably going to be um, much of a big deal. Um, these are these are luxury cars and, and it isn't the price that's tempting you to them. It is the luxury all electric um, aspect of the car. Um, so I don't re- I don't particularly think that that price um, is going to is going to be a big factor.
1: Well, let's talk about things that are big factors for a lot of people. Health. One of the interesting stories that I noticed this week is that the UK's National Health Service, the NHS, is going to start a six-month experiment with an artificial intelligence healthcare app called Babylon as an alternative to the current telephone consultation service. Right now, if you're worried about a a rogue lump or a cough or a rash or something oozing from uh, somewhere that typically does not ooze, uh, you can call 111 and a trained medical professional uh, will give you some advice and what your next step should be. But with this app, a trial of which uh, starts this month for about a million people in North London worried users can type in a symptom into the app rather than speaking it over the phone to a professional. There's an AI system behind the app which will ask follow-up questions and based on a supposedly vast knowledge of the world's diseases and lumps and oozes um, and, and it will know the warning signs, it can then give you some Uh, Some course of action and the kind of urgency you need to apply to that action. So it's expected apparently to take about 90 seconds of consultation time uh, through a back and forth series of about 10 to 12 questions. And currently, at least according to a writer I saw in the FT, it takes about 10 to 12 minutes for a human call handler to dispense the same advice. So it's something that's going to speed up that consultation period, but obviously using machines and artificial intelligence rather than speaking to a friendly voice on the phone. So one of the questions I i had at this point is is whether this is the kind of thing that we'd actually want to do and and weirdly over the last 12 18 months i think i've called this service once fortunately no problem i know andy doesn't mind me mentioning he called it once also was fine um so i thought we could talk a little bit about whether we would actually have wanted to call that same service rather than call the same service we want to use the app andy what's your first take on this
2: uh, my initial take is one of slight worry, um, because I, I see this being very much akin to just Googling your symptoms and going on a service like WebMD, which, and I'm sure I won't be the only person who's ever done this, and it is very common that whatever you put in, pretty much, seems to come back with something life-threatening and horrific. You put in symptoms of, uh, headache and dizziness, and then the result is, of course, cancer. And that, for a lot of people, could cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of, uh, People suddenly rushing off to the hospital in a in a sweat because they they think they're about to keel over. Um, and whereas when you're talking to somebody on the phone, they can take a lot more things into into account. They can ask you a lot more follow up questions. They could ask you, "Were you drinking last night?" And you can say, "Yes, eleven pints." And said, "Well, they that may be the cause of your headache." Then in that case, which may not come across in the app. And I think on the surface yes this i see the idea that it will it will reduce the impact on people going to their doctors needlessly but i think this could really cause a lot of worry in people who otherwise just don't need to worry
1: I think at the moment, because this is a trial, this is exactly the kind of feedback that they're trying to gauge. You know, they, they want to have a decent sample size of people to do this. It's interesting that they chose North London. Maybe there are more hypochondriacs up there. Maybe more calls originate from north of the river than south of the river in London. But it's the kind of, that's exactly the kind of feedback that they're obviously looking to get. I mean, personally, when when I first read this, my, my, my thought was, this reminds me of what happens, happened with self-checkouts, is that this is a way of having an alternative 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 alongside the existing model of paying for stuff but in a way that lets you know a a majority of people be seen by computer it's run-of-the-mill it's fairly routine it's generally got the same outcome and then humans step in when there's a problem and that's something that is going to happen with this app if it determines that actually yes maybe you do need to speak to somebody maybe you need a consultant to have a word with you then that will invoke a real physical human, and you'll have a conversation with them. This is kind of the first step there. But that also made me think, you know, keeping the self-checkout thing as an example, the frustration that people do often go through with, with self-checkouts and the annoyance about bagging areas or not scanning certain objects and having to call someone in quickly, that makes me think it's only going to be magnified tenfold if you're in a state of very heightened worry because of a symptom you've got. But then I guess it's all about choice, and if that was your situation, you'd probably still call 111 as opposed to using this app.
2: Well, possibly, as long as those services are still there, but it could also be the same frustration you have if you call a a regular helpline and it's, please dial 1 for this, and you just hammer um, 0, bypassing all the menus until they eventually put an an operator onto the phone for you. The same thing can just happen there, it's just causing steps in between, but... I don't know, I'd be very sceptical of this working better than just googling the symptoms, because presumably it's using essentially the same sort of algorithm, you you know, do you feel X, okay, then you've got Y, and, um, you know, there's probably a few other questions in there, but I try very hard whenever I feel anything to never
1: Google it. But I mean this isn't a new service. Babylon has been around for a while. It's not even the only one. I mean Babylon, just as one example, you know, its normal product is for one off consultations via video call or um, or or via a phone call. And you pay, I think, twenty pounds for one consultation or you can pay twenty pounds uh, a month like a subscription fee for, for some of these systems another one's called push doctor that does the, the same sort of uh, the same sort of thing um, there's another one called doctor now there's a lot of these apps and they're generally about putting you in front of a doctor when you're unable to get in front of a doctor this question answering system is more of a, a step before that rather than a replacement for the the consultation itself so my, my overall belief is that this probably will be a thing we'll see more of because people do seem to be liking using them in general and this is more the NHS's way of seeing if this could save them a few uh, hundred thousand pound a year on those initial consultations with humans in which case I think not a bad reason to have a six-month trial.
2: No I think that's a good it's a, it's a good idea in theory um, the, the problem is as well that so many symptoms there's no yes or or no answer and i certainly when i've called um uh the nhs direct phone line service and they've they've asked me um it, things like is my headache uh debilitating and i'm like well it depends on the, a lot there's a lot of things that's very much down to how how you're experiencing it and it, it's i find it very very difficult and i have to ask them to almost clarify their question um, in a way so, so to, to make sure that I am giving the right answers. I'm not saying, yes, this is a terrible thing. I can barely move. I can't see. But I'm giving the right answers so that they know what's wrong with me. And, uh, and I think that's, that's even more difficult to do when you're just answering questions in a form in an app.
1: If you are in North London and you exist between January and the summer this year, which hopefully you will do, um, you can let us know what this is like. If you if you are able to test it or if you're able to and willing to, even anonymously, that would be uh, really interesting to hear some feedback uh, for uh, podcast at We'd love to hear that. Obviously, being health, if you do let us know, please let us know how much of it you're willing for us to discuss. Uh, podcast at Well, it wasn't a brilliant start to the Consumer Electronics Show of 2017 this year when Gary Shapiro, the president and CEO of the group that runs it, said the UK government's lack of support for startups attending the show is a quote, source of embarrassment. Ooh, ben. Uh, Indeed, you're going to need a big plaster better called Babylon. Um, It reminded me of last year's CES when we learned France was in either, I think, the number two or number three spot behind the US in terms of the number of startups present at the show, partly, if not mostly, because of governmental support. A BBC report this week agreed with my memory and stated that there are nearly five times as many French companies attending this year's CES as British ones. And Shapiro said, quote, Britain's been a little slow to the game. Honestly, we have a minister from Britain coming, but he's but there's not a lot of activity that we've seen at CES. I think it's a source of embarrassment. Uh, He partly blame short-sightedness of ministers because the show is in seedy gambling-loving Las Vegas uh, rather than somewhere more conservative uh, our government obviously hit back uh, digital culture, uh, digital and culture minister Matt Hancock said he didn't think that's the case and we have a whole series of companies at CES uh, when speaking to the BBC he said government support was there uh, although I have to be honest I watched his interview with uh, BBC's Rory Callan jones and was kind of underwhelmed and uninspired by his rather defensive. Comments. Um, And obviously, Shapiro at at the uh, Consumer Electronics Association is, is playing the part quite strongly because obviously, the more people who come to CES, the better it is for them. But it's not hard to see that France and Israel and China and others are clearly doing everything they can to be represented at the UK while we seem to be at least taking something of a back seat uh, which was a bit of a shame but there's uh, a couple of really good videos on uh, on the BBC about uh, this view if you're interested but I thought that was a good segue into having a little bit of conversation about what we saw at the show specifically what Ian saw at the show he wrapped himself up in some bubble wrap the, the big bubbles not the uh, not the small ones you know there's really big satisfying ones that takes like 2 or 3 fingers to pop. He wrapped himself in those and he hopped inside a very large box, FedExed himself to the show. Uh, I didn't go so he presumably had a bit of a struggle to get out of the box at the other end but he did manage it and he did uh, get very excited about the BMW 5 Series prototype self-driving car which he took a tour uh, in himself to see what all the fuss was about and he sent in a report
0: about these cars and self-driving cars in general and what he's learned about them at the show this year. Ian? So one of the other things I've uh, noticed at this show this year has been the fact that with the autonomous cars comes the need to occupy the people who are in the cars and no longer needed for driving. So I sat in a BMW demo, we drove around uh, Vegas, which was an interesting experience in itself. Uh, And they showed us all the sort of things that they're planning on doing while you're in car. Uh, You'll be able to get uh, information about local landmarks. Uh, That's all done through gesture control. Uh, So you sort of point in the direction of the thing you want to sort of hear about, uh, and then the, the car is able to sort of read you through dictation, uh, various pieces of information, which is quite cool. Uh, They've also, all there's a lot of cars here uh, that have Cortana built in. Um, There's also been a massive boom in sort of Alexa being included in cars, which I guess is kind of an interesting thing because it means you're going to be able to get cars, uh, which you will be able to use to control your home um, as well as the in-car systems. Uh, very interesting, um, but it's quite, quite funny to see uh, that basically we have to fill up our time in our cars and if we're not driving we have to find something else to do. But one of the more amusing demonstrations was something uh, which was a sort, of, a, a sort of proof of concept, if you will, about Amazon Prime now delivery. Uh, what you do is you you're driving along Uh, obviously the car's doing the driving so you're browsing the internet looking at things to buy on amazon Uh, then what you're able to do is get a now delivery uh, and the car will program in a place to meet the delivery driver Uh, you you follow the instructions in the car uh, and you pick up your prime Now box. and BMW gave us a little demonstration of that and it was relatively entertaining this guy sort of shoves these uh, paper bags through the window at you uh, and you, you walk away with, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a box of chocolates and some toilet roll or something. But it's an interesting idea. Uh, I don't think they're rushing to get that out. Uh, but it's one of the many pieces of car technology that I've seen at this show. More from Ian
1: later. But very exciting, I think, that Andy. Quite an interesting idea to, uh, you know, cars basically being the cinemas of the future in some sense.
2: Well, obviously... People aren't going to be actually driving the cars. People are going to need something to do other than just sit there twiddling their thumbs, particularly to keep them awake so that they can be be around to take care of any problems that might happen. Um, But on the other hand, I think you've got to play the balance where you don't want somebody being that distracted by, say, a movie or a game or just plain sightseeing, like Ian said, that if the self-driving part of the car decided to crash into a lorry, you can't be there to take over.
1: I mean this is something that you May experience, have experienced slightly didn't you in the Tesla when you were testing that yeah. like it drove it drove itself for certain parts of your journey
2: yeah the te- the te- the model S that I that I drove it had um it had cruise control that would automatically adjust speed depending on how close you were to the car in front Um, And it would steer itself within the lines on the road. It scans the lines and keeps you going. So for about half an hour um, on the road, I didn't touch the, the, the pedals or the steering wheel once. I just sat back and the car did the whole thing, which was great. But I wasn't messing about. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't on my phone. I was making sure to pay full attention to the road because this is new technology. And I wanted to make sure that if anything did go wrong, which sometimes it did, it didn't detect some of the lines. It tried to maybe move me over a little bit. Um, or particularly when um, when I was trying to turn off the motorway, um, it, would, uh, it would start bleeping and try and almost wrench the steering wheel back in line because it sensed that I was going over the line, um, which obviously I was trying to do because I was leaving the motorway. Um, so I think it's important to not overdo. The uh, the self-driving stuff in the sense that you'd get bored, basically.
1: One of the things I find interesting about self-driving cars and what we've heard from CES this year uh, just comes around the need to have driving skills at all. I was asked by someone I was talking to the other day whether their children, who are currently approaching car driving age, are ever actually going to need to learn how to drive. And my answer, which I should point out, I don't drive, so I'm kind of separate to all this anyway, is that... Um, It'll probably, in much in the future, maybe in 10, 12 years' time, possibly be more like the emergency stop. You'll have to learn why you need it, you'll have to learn how to do it, and you'll be tested on your ability to do it, but whether you'll ever actually need to do it, as in physically learn physically take the wheel and drive a car is is a completely different question and i think that that at least in the medium term is possibly where we're going and so these sorts of ideas ian's talking about about entertainment and about having the car do a whole bunch of other useful tasks for you but still have a driving you know a steering wheel and pedals in front of you is possibly the way we're still going to see things for some time i I still think we're a very
2: long way off that. I think the, uh, self-driving and autonomous cars, they are great for urban transport and for big cities, particularly like London. Getting getting individual private cars off the road is great and replacing it with cars that can follow their own routes and can do, do stuff like that themselves is a great idea. But the problem is that the infrastructure that these cars need means that you can only really do that in cities. And and the idea of, ha- of having a self-driving car that's going to get itself all the way out to the country and all over these picturesque routes like that's that's much further away um and and this is quite separating from the pleasure of driving and just getting into a car and putting your foot down and enjoying the drive and enjoying doing that and and i think Brazil people don't want to lose
1: that it seemed very excited about the idea idea of a car being able to drive him to the meeting point to pick up chocolate and toilet (laughs) paper i mean what a future (laughs) He just wants a taxi, though. Yeah, this is <laughs> like he doesn't need a car. He just needs a taxi yeah. who can take him to the
2: shop so that he can buy things for his kids. Yeah.
1: Well, the toilet roll or the chocolate could easily be for him. Probably both. Um, Now, we'll come back to Ian a little later when we talk uh, about televisions and and some other things from CES. We're trying to split the the CES stuff up into two parts. Highly likely, if you're listening to a weekly tech podcast like this, you probably heard most of what's exciting at CES anyway. But there was one other thing I wanted to mention at this point that amused me massively. It really gave me a big beam on my face. It was probably about, I can't quite tell here, maybe about four or five inch smile. It was pretty big. Uh, was Griffin, which is uh, both the name of my grandma's deceased schnauzer, uh, but also a maker of electronics equipment. And they have made a smart toaster. And it got ridiculed a little bit on the internet for being uh, just a step too far in terms of internet of things and home automation. But I was sitting looking at this toaster and it had some buttons on the front that looked like eyes. And I felt it looking back at me and I thought, I like this. This is a very cool idea. Here's several reasons why. One, I like toast done in a very different way to Scotch pancakes or crumpets. I like my toast lighter done. I like my crumpets very well done. And I like my Scotch pancakes somewhere in the middle. This is different for different people in the household. Andy, who visits here on a fairly often, a fairly regular basis. For those who didn't know. I'm here right now, Nate. He is here right now. Andrew is, is of course, my, my brother. My fiance Kate, also likes things like Pop-Tarts done. But she always does them very, very, very light indeed. So... One toaster just has so many things to remember that having an app or a little display that lets you precisely tap. Okay, it's Nate Scotch Pancakes. Does it in a certain way. It's Kate Pop-Tarts. It's Andy Toast or anyone else who visits here. Um... That, to me, just actually felt like a really, really good idea. And we're talking about it because in Britain we eat a lot of toast. Um, I've been to America, never been that impressed with the toast. Uh, The meat, fantastic, but never so much toast. And I did wonder if that was why the US press was less excited about this than maybe we are. Andy, you are a consumer of bread. What were your thoughts on this specific product?
2: I'm on your side about this. This is exactly what we need. Um... I live in a flat share with, uh, with just some people, and every time I put in um, uh, bread or a scotch pancake, it's always seemingly on the wrong setting. They turn it down to one, and then it pops up immediately, barely barely toasted, and then you've got to fiddle with the settings and all the numbers have worn off, so you don't really know what you're getting. And there are some buttons that's, I think, ones for defrosting a bagel, and why does that need to be there? And so this, this, seems, this seems like the solution to both our... Problems, Um, although maybe no one else has the the same uh, tastes in uh, scotch pancakes and toast that we do, Nate. I think that's the issue. This is our product, and um, no one else is
1: really that, that first. That's what I love about a niche. When you see it and you think it's designed for you, it's just a great feeling. Warms the soul. I wanted to pick that one out as an item that maybe didn't get as positive praise elsewhere because I wanted to start this year off with a positive you know, a positive bang. Um, so let us know what you think to this and whether you would be as excited about a customised app-controlled toaster as Andy and I are. Podcast at nateslangson.com.
2: Nate, while we're talking about stupid uh, connected items... I never though- said
1: stupid. That was your word. I thought it was brilliant.
2: Okay, well, other people's opinions on stupid. Uh, I do want to do a quick mention to I don't even want to name it properly because I think this is ridiculous, but there's a uh, 200 pound smart hairbrush from CS. This is the first smart hairbrush that apparently uses um pressure sensors and motion sensors and even um even uh, microphones to tell you uh the the condition of your hair and whether you're brushing too hard, um which is I think this is too far
1: it's got microphones in it yeah should have been called a hairbrush we'll come back to ces later and another report from ian but in the meantime let's talk about something that's very exciting a bit closer to home bbc earth has announced a new partnership with Facebook's virtual reality headset company, Oculus, to launch three new VR experiences. These will be available for the Oculus Rift headset and the Samsung Gear VR in the coming weeks, according to a story on Engadget. Essentially, if you wear a headset and you load up one of these programs, you'll be able to interact with these three episodes that showcase the habits of the... Uh, Andy, you may have to help me out with the pronunciation of these things here. What are these? The Carasol uh, cat? Uh, Caracal cat.
2: Oog beast the- Oogpister beetle.
1: Okay, and some black bears. I can pronounce that one. That's no yeah. problem. Right, well, let's pick the cat's one as an example. Uh, the BBC said it will freeze uh, Pussycat mid-air, uh, or mid-jump, rather, to let viewers zoom in and interact with it in 360 degrees. Kind of educational. I think the Oogpister beetle uh, is more of a consumer, a computer animated, more educational thing. And then Let me tell you about the Oogpister beetle, Nate. It can
2: fire a jet of um, some sort of liquid from its back end that gets superheated uh to quite a large degree um so that would be quite interesting to see in um uh you know in full vr 360 and slow motion
1: i don't really want to be, be uh, behind it to be honest that sounds terrifying. Well, Bear Island may be more terrifying. It follows black bears. They're much larger than beetles. On a journey to an Alaskan river, viewers are going to be able to jump between different perspectives of the bear, different storylines about their journeys, uh, with virtual reality helping to, to make it feel like they're right there next to Mr. Grizzly. Uh, the BBC says the episodes will be available before the end of January, which is very exciting, and will be free to download for the first three months. Now, I've always thought that the best things to see in, in virtual reality have got to be documented Mm-hmm. Um, you know, films—that's one thing. But you, you know, a director is always going to present what they think is the best thing to be looking at any given moment. Video games is an obvious one, but we've already kind of got that. Documentary filmmaking, though, it's the sort of thing where you want Attenborough to be in front of you and talking to you, but you always want to be able to move around and just look at, you know, just what's left of the camera, what's below you, what are you, what are you standing on, what's the camera positioned on, and I think that. Planet Earth and BBC uh, BBC Earth. I'm sorry, getting into this is just extremely exciting. I can't. I can't wait for this. I don't have a Samsung Gear VR, but I'm going to have to borrow one in order to try this out.
2: Yeah, this is the time when it's when you need to get something really good to watch this on, because I can just imagine. Being in, say, the middle of a of a bison migration, and there's the camera right in the middle, so you can look around and you can see the different animals charging from all over the place or wandering through a forest. This, this is essentially Attenborough taking you by the hand and leading you through the most beautiful parts of the world, and these are places that are you want to see in full three hundred and sixty. It's not. You know, we've, we've we've talked about movies, maybe, but really, there's always one point that you need to focus on. Whereas that isn't the case with with these documentaries. You want to look all the way around, and sure, you might only need to look at one part where the animal's there, but you want to take in the whole atmosphere, the whole place. And this is this is really what
1: VR is for. Well, it's going to be out for you uh, before the end of this month. So we'll maybe check back on this and uh, and see what it's like. Well, moving into uh, another kind of end of year report, essentially. This one from the UK's Entertainment Retailers Association, which, as everyone will know, is the source of the most exciting annual reports. Uh, this year, of course, no exception. Sorry, there was a bit of sarcasm there. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure that came across. Uh, yeah, mildly came across. In the okay. Time. Good, good, good. Uh, but it, but it is very interesting stuff, and uh, that's with no sarcasm at all. It has said that for the first time in 2016, the video market became a majority digital business in the UK, with revenues from downloads and subscription services, such as iTunes, Sky's on Demand stuff, Amazon, Netflix, etc., are now, for the very first time ever in the UK, exceeding those of DVD and Blu-ray. Specifically, digital video revenues in the UK were uh, as high as 1.3 billion pounds in 2016, which is 20% up over 2015, except that physical revenues from DVD and Blu-ray were down just under 20% as well, to uh, just a hair under £900 million. In music, revenues had grown 4.6% in 2016, and this was apparently powered by a 65% rise in music subscription revenues in Britain. Uh, Digital services now for music account for about 57% of all music revenues in the UK. So again, all that is based on streaming services alone. And it meant that overall, the sales of music, video, and games are a billion pounds ahead of where they were in 2012. So streaming, if we want to draw a conclusion here, really has now, as of 2016, become the mainstream, overtaking physical across all three major entertainment platforms, uh, or uh, types, rather. This makes me very excited uh, across my entire body because the demand... Existing there really does, I think, open the door for a much wider range of services uh, coming to cater for the areas that maybe are currently just leaving something to be desired, such as, I wanted to pick one example, high-end audio streaming. I don't know if you saw, Andy, this week. Tidal is switching on support for studio master quality audio. Um, normally, CD- So higher than it
2: was already doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, CD quality currently eclipses anything you stream from, say, Spotify or Apple or Amazon. But... Titles eclipses CDs significantly. They've only got about 30,000 tracks compared to about 30 million on Spotify and, and Friends. Uh, but it's a start they've been doing hi-fi hi, you know high end streaming for a while but this is now even higher still this is more in the the region of super audio cd which is much much higher still and uh, but but difficult to to make digital at the moment uh, and as accessible as streaming services are uh, but either way this is all great news for audiophiles for streaming video lovers uh, i've not seen anything hugely negative in here although i know you have pans something you wanted to mention about the grand tour
2: well yeah, because on the one hand, this the the these figures that you've been you've been throwing out that that shows the the faith that we've always had that people want to pay for uh, for video and for music, um, so they want to use legal services rather than just getting things illegally. However. Um, In December, some uh, analyst reports uh, said that the Grand Tour, that's um, Clarkson, Hammond & May's, uh, you know, the new Top Gear, essentially the Amazon version, the Grand Tour show um, may well have been the most pirated TV show in the history of TV. Wow, well, really? More than Game of Thrones? Apparently, apparently, the first episode was illegally downloaded 7.9 million times, uh, with the subsequent two episodes being downloaded 6.4 and 4.6 million times, respectively. Uh, which, obviously, those are huge, huge numbers. Um, even though this is a show that is available on Amazon Prime. Um, I think it just really shows that people aren't willing to stump up more money for extra services like Amazon's Prime if they're already paying money for Netflix, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean the the Amazon one's an interesting example because it's not just a case of signing up for a streaming video service or buying, you know, eight episodes to download. You're having to buy an an e-commerce package for a year to access, which is quite an ask if you just want to watch the new Top Gear. It's nowhere near as simple even if the price was Competitive, which I think what you get for Amazon Prime, it's a good price. But if all you want is to watch the new Clarkson show, then paying whatever it is about hundred quid a year is is a is a hell of an ask. But let us know if you have any thoughts on on those uh, those figures being basically pretty good for the UK in the streaming uh, media world. There was one other thing, completely the opposite end of the the chart, which is vinyl sales apparently have reached a twenty five year high. And I feel like for the last (laughs) for the last five years, uh, every year. on a podcast I've done, I've had a story at some point about how vinyl is breaking a new a new record. But it did last last uh, month.
2: Record, I get it.
1: Very good, very good. Um, last year, it topped three million sales for vinyl in the UK. It was the highest since 1991, when apparently Simply Red's album Stars uh, was the biggest record. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a fifty percent rise year over year. So it's not even just a small incremental figure. It's literally twice as, uh, uh, half as many again as they sold last year. Uh, but it's still accounting for just under three percent of the overall music market. Uh, obviously, CD sales we've seen uh, uh, falling massively year over year. Forty-seven point three million CDs were bought in twenty sixteen, which just feels like such a tiny little number. That's actually that's a drop of twelve percent. Nate, are you suggesting that in twenty seventeen the music
2: industry's big growth segment is vinyl? No, I'm saying in 2016 it was. But that presents an opportunity in 2017.
1: (laughs) Yes, next year. It would not surprise me if that was even higher still. I imagine next year at this time, you can mark it on your calendars, check back with the show in a year's time. I'll be saying it's the uh, biggest bump in quarter of a century plus one year. Um, because there's no lessening demand or momentum for for vinyl, apparently, at the moment. Either way, it's a good place to be. People are making more money from music, and that's no bad thing to see taking place. I think this is
2: this is not too surprising, because what I see from a lot of bands, um, in, including, for example, I'm right next to one of yours by um, Cradle of Filth, is that there are a lot of bands putting out these special edition printed vinyls, which are designed for wall mounting. They're designed for, for display and for keeping. They're not just a way of playing the music you don't buy them and then put them on at a party it's a it's just about owning this special object um in a in an era where you're not buying cds anymore
1: it's interesting because i own a total of three special edition vinyls uh, but own a total of zero turntables Well, we're going to just return very briefly to a little more from CES. One of the things I asked Ian to check out was LG's ridiculously thin 77-inch television, which measures 2.6 millimeters deep. I saw that compared to four credit cards pressed together. That's how thick it is.
2: Does it have to be four credit cards? Because I don't have four credit cards, but I could do a uh, credit card, oyster card, uh, library card, and um, maybe uh, some sort of coffee uh, loyalty card. Is that, is that enough? I'd say it's about
1: comparable. That's fine. About comparable. It hangs on the wall using magnets because it's not thick enough to support screws or indeed support any ports. It has to have a little clip on bar underneath just to enable the connectivity that it uh, needs in order to display a picture. Anyway, I asked Ian on his very last hour at CES to push through his dehydration, just get as much energy as he possibly could into one last report for us about LG's television, uh, and he sent this in.
0: Okay, so I've come to the LG stand to look at their new ultra-thin TV. you know, you'll have to take my word for it, because, obviously, this is audio, not video. Uh, and it is very thin indeed. Uh, I, I saw one uh, tweet that described it as, as thin as wallpaper, which it most certainly is not. Uh, it is very impressive, though, and it is extremely thin. I think it would only really work if you were gonna wall-mount it, because uh, otherwise it's just gonna sort of flap around in the middle of your living room. Um, and that would be a bit of a disaster. Um, so very much designed for wall mounting. Looks incredible. Colors are amazing. Uh, beautiful blacks. But you have this media bar at the bottom. That's sort of a requirement of it. Uh, that allows you to plug in devices, obviously, because the TV doesn't isn't thick enough to have any actual sockets on it. Uh, but the upside to this media bar thing is that it has Dolby Atmos in. It, so you should get some pretty amazing surround sound. Uh, so from that perspective, it's pretty impressive actually Uh, and it certainly looks the part. I think it's going to go on sale for roughly 92 million pounds or something I have no idea honestly but it's won a whole stack of awards. Tech Radar have given it best TV Uh, and then everything else as well. It's it's pretty good I've got to say and it's certainly drawing a big crowd. People do love a thin TV and we've been seeing them in this manner for many many years Uh, and this one is the thinnest but it doesn't do anything particularly new, apart from being an OLED, uh, and it's very expensive. And it's 77 inches. And that's pretty much all I've got to say about it. He doesn't sound too happy, does he? He's tired, bless him. He's done a lot out there this
1: week. But um, it was good to get a, a hands-on report, at least. And it does sound like he's generally in favor of the television and seems to agree with the wards that it's won being justified. But I'm extremely excited to see that TV in picture because I've never seen a TV that thin in person. Uh, I imagine his estimation of the cost is just slightly hyperbolic. I think it might be just a little exaggerated, probably more like two or three thousand pounds when it actually hits um, shelves. But we'll see. Uh, One last thing I wanted to touch upon from CES was just around Amazon Alexa. And we saw an LG fridge powered by Alexa. We've also heard of cars being powered by the voice assistant Alexa. Now, this is the Alexa that is in the Amazon Echo, the big, big push that Amazon's made into home automation and assistance and shopping, of course. But we have seen it at CES in everything we've seen it in refrigerators we've seen it into little smart home robots we've seen it in lamps from general electric we've seen it in dancing robots we've seen it in alarm clocks more cars volkswagen put it in cars we've seen it in smart watches we've seen it in uh, uh smartphones from huawei we've seen it inside tiny little cameras i mean we've just seen it in almost every product category that was at ces i'm sure it's in something to do with toilets something to do with hair dryers. We just didn't look quite hard enough. And Andy, when I asked you what was the big trend from CES this year, your answer to me was Alexa's in everything, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Alexa's all over the place. And I'm really so, glad because I'm what what I
2: voice assistance is clearly like that's the big trend at the moment. Everything's voice activated and will answer to you and talk to you. But what I'm glad is that these individual companies are using the existing Alexa software. They're using what Amazon's already doing. They're not trying. It's not that everyone has their own version of of um uh, of an assistant that they're all trying to roll out i mean there are other ones you know google assistant is is new and that will be in more things but right we could easily be talking about 20 different products each of which has their own version of an assistant none of which would work very well but instead they've been sensible and have actually gone with one that's existing that they know to work i think that is great
1: yeah, I agree. I am I like Alexa. I think it's a, a great idea. I think that we're heading into an interesting era of marketing for these different assistants. Obviously, Microsoft has Cortana. We've seen cars at CS powered by Cortana. We've got Google's assistant, which also we've seen cars powered by that. We've got Apple's Siri, which is baked into some cars in CarPlay, into home automation as well, and obviously into the iPhone and, and other iOS devices and the Mac. We've got Alexa, and, and there are others out there, independent AI systems that are cropping up being baked into other technologies too so this is probably going to be the thing that we want to look at again in 12 months time and just see how much these have moved on how many have caught on but at least right now it looks like the front runner at least purely based on what's was it ces and what's going to come to market this next year is alexa alexa has won the gold in uh i mean arguably ces if you want to be really broad but certainly in terms of its ability to be integrated into a, the widest range of products does alexa appeal to you at all, Nate? You, you have a nice house
2: and you are exactly the sort of person who could have one of the um, e- Amazon Echo um, speakers with Alexa built in, sitting on your sideboard so that you can just bark questions at it whenever you want, but you don't. Why not? Um,
1: that's a really good question. I don't actually know because... I think broadly it's because I've never felt like there's anything I'm doing that would be enhanced by voice commands. I've had Siri in a phone and never use it. I've had it in a Mac and never use it. I've got Windows 10 on my gaming PC. I never use Cortana for anything voice activated. I've got an Amazon Echo in the house. It's just not plugged in. And you've got Um, a fiancé. And I've got a fiancé. She wants to use the Echo, so I might Just get her to set that up and maybe she can give me some feedback. But I don't know why. It's just one of these things where I've just not felt compelled to use it for any of these products, not just Amazon's, but just anything. Like there's no, there's just, I don't know. Maybe this is the impetus I needed. I have no answer to that question that's viable or good. So maybe this is the point. I'm going to set it up. I'm going to try using some of these for the next few months and see what I learn.
2: Yeah, I've just given you a challenge there. So in six months time, we'll return to this. and I'll ask you again, how
1: are you finding it? And you'll say it's pointless or not. I may have fallen in love with it. I mean it's happened before, but we'll we'll come back to it. Let's check in with Tom Merritt, dailytechnewshow.com and see what he's learnt this week. Hey, thanks, Nate. This week started out talking about cloud PCs and whether the latency is finally low enough to make them useful for things like gaming or AutoCAD. Then most of the rest of the week was dominated by CES, for fin TVs with speakers in the screen, to autonomous cars from everyone, to Amazon Voice Services becoming the new leader in the smart home space and showing up in cars as well. We finished the week with a discussion about the U.S. Federal Trade Commission's efforts to encourage Internet of Things device makers to be more secure. All that and more at dailytechnewsshow.com. Well, Ian will be back with us next week. And thank you to everybody who, over the last month or so, has been submitting answers to our survey. We have had hundreds of people give us fantastically insightful responses to our survey Andrew Hoyle tell people please where they can find you on the web and elsewhere
2: uh, on the web you can find me easily on Twitter with at HQ, or you can just search Andrew Hoyle on CNET I'm sure you'll find me um, off the web you can find me wherever good things happen
1: and indeed in John Lewis yesterday as I heard one of your podcast listeners found you
2: yes that was true but at least it was in John Lewis where I was looking at candles rather than in you know Ann Summers looking at uh fist-shaped objects.
1: Always the best way. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves